In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Betches Media presents. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. You want to hang out with us? Get your vaccine. Vaccine, vaccine. And so I went to Human Resources. There are some things I just can't tell you uh, on air. The Betches Sub Podcast. A woman's problem, if you will. Hello, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Caitlin Bird. And this is the Betches Up Podcast, where C-SPAN uses the group chat to help you process and laugh at the biggest topics in U.S. news and politics. Today, we are so excited to be here with Amanda Littman. We're back. She joined Sammy for afternoon tea, and we got greedy and had to ask her back. Thank you so much for joining us. I would always come to join you guys. You're one of my favorites. Oh, thank you so much. You are obviously affiliated with Run for Something, and you are the co-host of the Battleground podcast over with our friends at The Recount, which I had to ask you on because I've been listening to this. You co-host it with Baz Shakir, and it is such an amazing conversation. How are you enjoying doing it? It's so much fun. I am learning so much. It's just like the best possible excuse to ask the smartest people we know a whole bunch of really dumb questions and (laughs) feel smarter at the end of every conversation. So I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. I mean, one thing I love about the conversations that you have on your show is that you're having conversations about like policy and politics that are, I guess you could say somewhat outside the mainstream, but are like just as important, if not more important than the subjects that are dominating national politics. So you two are both like the smartest people I know on democratic electoral politics. I feel like if everybody just listened to you both, we would all, um, I mean, we do run all three parts right now, but you wouldn't necessarily know it. Um, <laughs> but most recently, you ha- you've had conversations with leaders from Demand Justice about how urgent the Supreme Court situation is. You've had elections experts. Oh, this one was terrifying about our crumbling elections infrastructure. <laughs> Don't worry, it's not just bridges and roads. <laughs> um, the best way to actually spend ad money. So on this show, we tend to, um, we react to the problems of the day. It seems like you and your co-host go looking for problems. <laughs> is that stressful? Um, yes and no. I think that the lens that we take to this is that there are some really big structural issues that the Democratic Party and more broadly, the American people have failed to address that directly affect the outcome of these elections. And if you take a zoom out a little bit, it's really helpful to understand it's not just like the day to day messaging that sometimes gets wrong or like this bill or that bill. It's that the way we fund campaigns is broken. The way we run camp elections are broken. The way we vote is broken. Our courts are broken. Um, And when you start to understand the big picture, you can begin to better disentangle the sort of minutia of the day to day. And I find it really interesting to talk about these systems and structures because it makes it much more clear how much harder the problems are, which is a good place to start if you're trying to fix them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Caitlin is famous on our podcast for at least uh, once every couple of weeks dropping the 1929 Reapportionment Act and how it is responsible for a lot of our ills. (laughs) Love it. (laughs) So we definitely um, love that framework. I wanted to pose this question to both of you first. I realize I haven't really talked to Caitlin about this, and I feel like you probably have an interesting answer too. But what was your like first memorable interaction with politics that made you believe it could be used to make actual real change. Cause as much as we talk about the negatives, like, I feel like I know both of you are actually like really positive at heart and 
are engaged with these things because you believe it can make change. So why do you feel that way? Uh, I'll let Amanda go first as our, as our guest. <laughs> um, my first engagement with politics uh, probably started, I guess I don't really remember a time I didn't care about this. Um, I like knocked doors for Democrats in Virginia when I was growing up. My best friend's mom used to take us to pro-choice Virginia rallies. But the moment I knew I wanted to work in politics, my junior year of high school, I grew up in the Virginia suburbs outside D.C., um, this guy, Barack Obama, was doing a tour of universities to give speeches ahead of his announcement that he was running for president. He was like road testing you know, students for Obama. Um, and probably January of that year before he announced his campaign, he came to the university across the street from my high school. And I had heard rumors of this guy and like seen his keynote speech and skipped a day of school, like bounced out of my English class, went across the street with a couple of friends. I was such a good little What a nerd. (laughs) It's so on brand. Um, And went to see him speak. And I remember walking away thinking, oh, this is what politics could feel like, like part of something big. Um, And I know it's really, you know, sort of cliche to say that like Obama inspired me to get involved and, you know, feeling inspired by some politician who could speak in a way that felt relatable. But that was really the moment I knew this is what I want to do for the rest of my life is I want to be part of a movement of people who care so deeply about change and they create a sense of community. Yeah, totally. What about you, Caitlin? Uh, well, I'm really glad I let Amanda go first. So that I <laughs> wouldn't be repeating what she said, which was going to be Barack Obama. Mine too. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm actually going to go with something that I think it, it, you know, they say that if you like take your kids into the voting booth with you, like that's where like the the civic engagement really comes from is like this notion that that's just normal for your parents and everything. So I'm going to trace my belief to something that actually happened to my parents um, which was they were both delegates for Songus at the 1992 convention. Whoa. Uh, and that happened because uh, they received some lit for, for Black people and they were like, this is awful. <laughs> and they wrote to the Songus campaign, this is, it's like borderline racist. Like, it's really bad. What we, we can fix it for you. Here are some our suggestions. And the Songus campaign, instead of saying, wow, you guys are impertinent. Where do you get off telling us well, how to write lit? Said, great, we'd love to have you. Come on in. Wow. And they, so they got a chance to kind of be delegates at the convention. And I was like, 92. Okay, so that puts me at about four years old. Um, and I was like a little kid at the time, but it's so exciting to like watch it on television. And for my parents to like come back every night with like the floor passes and everything. Cause it was in New York that year. Wow. Cool. Um, and it was just like, to me, I'm always going to remember that kind of being like the inception of my belief that politics could, could actually work like it's supposed to. Um, it was a small thing. Their candidate didn't even win. Like, <laughs> yeah, they weren't super dedicated to Songus either. It wasn't like they were mad that Bill Clinton won. Like none of this happened, but like, it was just like this really basic, simple thing. And I think it's always informed my belief that like we get into politics to make things better. That's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Totally. I feel like uh, mine is definitely Obama related too. And I, there, 
I'm sure somebody is writing a book on this. I mean, maybe this is sort of like what Charlotte Alter's book is, but there is a specific, like the impact of Barack Obama on 20 somethings that I think will like stay and be a characteristic part of people in their early thirties and late twenties and, and into, I, I don't know the precise age, but, but I guess just blanket millennials um, because of that, like first, first engagement with Obama. It's really interesting. Yeah. He was also like from, if he was your first presidential vote, that like that's the turning point for a lot of people where like that's where their inspiration to stay involved and keep track of this stuff came from. Because I think our generation is definitely, even though the engagement numbers aren't there on voting, I think our awareness of politics is like a, a just general around thing is much higher because of Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the political issues we're dealing with now are still a reaction to Obama. Today's episode of American Fever Dream is brought to you by Newly. Have you ever felt that fast fashion ick, but can't always afford the super high end stuff? I have a solution for you. It's Newly. Newly has everything you need to bring your closet up to speed for the season without breaking the bank. Free your closet of impulse purchases and skip the buyer's remorse by renting instead. Newly is a subscription rental service, and for just $98 a month, you get your choice of any six styles. They also have inclusive sizing, up to 5X, as well as petite and maternity. You get fast, free shipping and returns and professional cleaning and newly state-of-the-art laundering facility. No laundry for you to worry about. This is the best. You just put it back in your box, send it out, and before you know it, you've got your next one. And you always have the option to buy what you love for sometimes up to 75% off. I bought the Rachel Antonoff pasta puffer from them. I was obsessed with it, like everybody who tries it is, and it was completely sold out everywhere else. So I felt like I really, really had an in there. So thank you, Newly. Newly is an amazing value at $98 a month for any six styles. And right now you can get $20 off your first month of Newly when you sign up with the code FeverDream20. Just go to N-U-U-L-Y.com. That's newly with two U's and enter the code FeverDream20 and sign up to get $20 off your first month. That's N-U-U-L-Y.com, newly with two U's with code FeverDream20. Newly subscription clothing rental, change your clothes. So I want to start with critical race theory, aka just teaching history. You did a recent episode on this, uh, Amanda, with Tyler Kincaid, and that episode really did scare me. Um, Because this is, as you pointed out, the issue that Republicans are going to ride on. This is going to be their culture war. There's not a lot left for them that is still popular, but, you know, they want to get back those suburban moms. I mean, we know that even more white women voted for Trump last time, but there is still a margin that they're trying to get me, that they're trying to get back. So something that um, I love of what you guys do with Run for Something is you're looking at the offices that really impact people's lives, which brings me to school boards. Mm-hmm. Can you sort of describe both of you? I'll start with Amanda. What do school boards do? How are they put together? Um, are they put together in various ways? And do you think Democrats and Democratic voters have traditionally underestimated their impact on the education system and national politics? Yes. Um, so let's start with generally speaking, what school boards do. And it's worth caveating all of this to say that <laughs> there's a lot of different ways that these function. Um, yeah. Each community and each district is cut up in a slightly different way. The powers that they're given might be a little bit different. The reporting structure might be a little bit different. Even the name might be a little bit different. It could be the independent school district or the board of education, you know, a lot of different ways. Generally speaking, um, school boards manage school budgets. Uh, They manage often curriculums. They manage teacher contracts. They often hire and fire superintendents or principals, depending on the place. Uh, They oversee things like equity policies uh, and uh, 
funding and capital campaigns for the physical structures of schools. Uh, they often control things like um, who and what requirements are needed to graduate in any given district. Sometimes those things are controlled on the state level, sometimes they're controlled on the district level. Um, Democrats historically have under-engaged in a national sense on school boards. Like there is a committee for congressional campaigns. There's a committee for governors. There's a committee for state legislatures. If you are a Democrat who wants to run for school board, there's not really any central source of truth. Now, part of that is because a lot of school board races are technically nonpartisan. Um, you don't necessarily run with a D or R next to your name. Part of that is because Democrats writ large have sort of a intra-party tension around charter schools and you know, in particular teachers unions in relationship to charter schools, which is a whole separate ball of wax we don't really need to get into. <laughs> that being said, I think our failure to build national infrastructure around these local elections, like school boards, has left us at an incredible deficit. Um, the Republican Party, and in particular, an organization called the Leadership Institute, which is a Koch brothers and, you know, similar to Republican mega donor funded C3 that focuses on training and recruiting conservative operatives and activists has been around for about 42 years, I believe. Their annual budget's about $30 million. They have been working on local elections like school boards. And in fact, just this year are launching a specific curriculum for school board candidates, but have doing, doing this for decades to make sure that they control these critical offices. And they have done so for years yeah. to the detriment of the curriculum that our kids are learning. One of the stories I think about constantly, I think we talked about this with Tyler on that episode of Battleground, is a New York Times feature from maybe two years ago. Uh, it, was, it was like early January, and it was comparing textbooks in California and Texas. Um, because in Texas, the State Board of Education, which the Republicans have spent a lot of money to win, has basically line item veto power over what's in the textbooks. And accordingly, they have very clearly delineated a particular perspective on American history um, from, you know, nixing mentions of Helen Keller and Hillary Clinton to sort of rewriting the story of the Alamo to a very uh, conservative viewpoint uh, description of the Second Amendment. And the thing that the New York Times story missed, but that I think is really important to call out, is that's not an accident. It's a political outcome of political strategy. It is the, the goal because when you cultivate students at a young age and sort of not just brainwash, but teach them a very particular lens on American history that creates the kind of citizen they become. Um, so the control of school boards, while it feels like a localized issue and you know it, each, each community should decide for itself, if we do not engage as a party in a broad sense on these offices, we are letting our kids' educations and livelihoods and future voting behaviors up for grabs in a way that is obviously, especially now we are seeing so dangerous, so, so dangerous. Uh, yes, I agree. Uh, all of that. Like, I just, I kind of wish there was like a way to like not repeat it, but then make everyone <laughs> listen to it again. You should rewind. 15 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we talk about uh, Obama being kind of this inflection point and I want to I want to say that I want to balance that out to some degree, because the other thing that Barack Obama swept in was a 
a focus on national politics to the detriment of local offices in ways that had not previously animated the Democratic Party. He was so charismatic. He he was so drawn. He draw, drew us in so much. It's all his fault. That that to some degree, and and I would I'll toss his neglect of the DNC in there. I'll toss his misuse, I would argue, of Obama for America, which turned to organizing for America. I would talk about how he did not give these organizations the correct framing and focus to actually make something sustainable past him, which created that the the biggest thing for me wasn't like in the 2010 wave. The worst part of it was not, you know, Republicans winning back the House with huge numbers and whatever. Like that to me felt to a certain degree inevitable. Like as a black person, I hit a certain point where I was like, there's good. This is good. It's going to come with a backlash. This is the nature of this this fight. <laughs> what killed me was the lost state houses letting Republicans win at the state level because there was nobody fighting. And I remember watching that number for state houses get close to, they got really close to the constitutional convention number. And I thought, oh my God, no one's paying attention to the fact that we were just before 2016, I think, about one state house out, one Republican controlled state house from a constitutional convention. Can you explain how that would have, why that would have been triggered? They would have called, I, if I were them, the moment you get to your two thirds state houses, you immediately call that sucker and you put all the stuff that you can't get past normally. You do lock all of that in forever. We get a balanced budget amendment for no reason whatsoever. They would really hate that. And it never comes up. <laughs> you get a balanced budget amendment in there. You get a women are chained to their wombs. Uh, in there, you get no one's allowed That's to what they would name it. Gender. No men are allowed to wear glitter pants ever. Amendment, you get like they would, they would bring everything that would lock us in forever. You get a second, second amendment. I don't know how that would work. Toy guns, probably. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like anything that gives liberals anything good would be repealed out of the, and they would just make this huge slate of amendments. That would be my guess, and then have them all vote on it, like a, as a matter of course. And I saw that, and I was like, how do we leave all these local offices yeah. to, you know, abandon them? Yeah. And, you know, New York is an instructive story, came back and the IDC getting challenged and that grassroots effort to push out Democrats who were partnering with Republicans in the state Senate in order to get more for their districts. But on and but basically agreeing to let Republicans stymie Democratic Assembly and the Democratic governor. And that break, that focus on local elections and that grassroots has brought some great people out into local government. There are lots of amazing people who are talking now about uh, Cuomo being ousted because they were working towards that too. Right. Mm -hmm. And you've got this next generation set up to actually be the next set of political leaders at the top of the hierarchy. So it's really important to care about your local offices. I know that if it, it seems really, really petty and it is, it's so petty. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so petty people um, like petty though so they can't pretend that's the problem people love petty i mean so now my, this obviously as you mentioned plays into a bigger issue with democrats where we just do not activate and animate mm-hmm. our supporters on the local level about these issues how much of this is a media problem and how much of this is a democrats problem 
I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. I think you have a media problem. Let's start with that one in which the demise of local media has directly affected the outcome of local elections. There's a lot of studies here on everything from when local media outlets disappear, fewer people run for mayor, which is really wow. interesting. There's not as much paid attention of local, lower voter engagement in local elections, lower competitiveness in local elections. You know, all of that spirals out from less attention being paid. And you could blame sort of, you know, media funding mechanisms, social media, uh, you know, a failure of mega donors or mega billionaires to want to support local outlets who may not be able to raise a profit. So you have a media bucket, which is a problem. And then you have the Democratic Party. And I actually want to be really specific here. I think there's incredible grassroots organizers and incredible operatives and activists within the party who want to engage on the local level. I think Democratic mega donors, and I have told many of them to their face, have an, a, an affection and an affinity and a love for the flashy things, the things that get you ambassadorships. I do think this is partially something that is a lot of them learn through working in the Obama sort of era of like, if I give to the president's campaign, then I get invited to the White House and Obama, I get a photo with Obama and Michelle and they're so lovely and you know, <laughs> I get a photo to the senators and I get to go to the egg roll, the Easter egg roll at the White House, you know, that kind of shit. It is like, that stuff is important. Yeah, you should totally give money to a presidential campaign. You should totally give money to a Senate race. And it doesn't matter if you don't also have the bottom. It does, it becomes like a, yeah. a false foundation it's an iceberg with nothing on the bottom i don't you know there's a metaphor here yeah you do not have the bottom <laughs> of the pyramid the top will disintegrate and i think this is now sort of what we're seeing with the biden white house and congress we have congress we have the white house but because we don't have governorships we don't have state legislatures we don't have enough city councils and school boards it's not sustainable and that's really at the end of the day part of the democratic donor community's problem is we do not focus on building long-term sustainable power. You know, Republican mega donors give because it's a good business investment for Republicans yeah. to win, or at least they see it that way. They get their tax cuts and their judges. And I think there's one of the things we talked about with Brian Fallon here in the Battleground episode was the sort of conglomeration of business and um, anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ rights activists and donors who combine to fund the Republican Party. Democrats give because it's good because yeah. it feels good. And feeling good means you need to have short-term like gratification. And it's really hard to have short-term gratification and also fund long-term infrastructure, which might not get you invited to fund cocktail parties, but is really the only way you can win meaningful elections. So yeah. Was it, was it frustrating? I mean, during 2020, we were all desperate to flip the Senate, but, but now that we're having this conversation, I'm just trying to imagine like Amanda watching her TV, seeing these Senate races that were kind of unwinnable, raising hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, why did we put all of that money into Kentucky and South Carolina? I mean, Amy McGrath raised what, $92 million yeah. like that. She almost doubled what the DLCC raised. So like, that's shocking. Not it, great. Not <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, building a sustainable party requires, uh, I'll say there's a combination of things. One is that Democrats spend a lot of time running away from their base rather than shoring it up versus Republicans who lean heavy into their base to such a degree that they literally 
have to create it, it basically became like either a pyramid scheme or a cult right <laughs> maybe a crossover like i because they absolutely need to continue pulling people into full bore high octane don't stop for a second outrage at all times because if it, if it stops for any moment people are going to stop and think wonder why they're putting all this energy here and then go do something else with their lives and that is the the key. They need to hand out wins. And Republicans do that. They say, you can win here. You can own this. You can put down that person you don't like. All of these things make it very easy for that to happen at a local level, but to continue churning. Democrats spend their time talking about how they really, 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 really wish Black people were at their base. They really spend so much time just it's deeply insulting. I mean, Joe Biden basically got elected because Jim Clyburn said a thing and he is not moving on voting rights, even though there's literally black people are like this will obliterate us. Joe right. Biden, can you organize more? Maybe uh-huh. Do you, we can just out organize the suppression, right? Us. You need to fuck with the white people you are friends with. You need to fuck them up. Yes. You need to fuck them up, please, for us. We have been begging you. We the only reason we voted for you was so you could go fuck them up. This is this is the thing. We are asking for this one thing, which is our lives. Please do that. And Joe Biden's still here fighting us. That would not happen in the Republican Party. The Republican Party right. had their base storm Congress and shit in its halls, and they are defending it. By pretending that it didn't happen, or if it did happen, it wasn't that bad. Or if it was that bad, it was probably your fault, Democrats. Mm-hmm. That we're just getting straight through that. And that is insane to me that this is how you lose at the local level on a consistent basis. Because if you don't care about the people who are going out and voting for you every single time, how are you ever going to have something that can churn upwards to bring talent through right. the levels of politics that need to be done in order to get really good at administering an entire state? Because that's a skill. It's not just something that you like. wake up and you're like, I'm a really smart person. I could probably run Colorado. That's not right. true. That is not true. You cannot run Colorado. So you need to train upwards and we need to recruit at the bottom. But if it's going to be miserable like this and you're not going to get any cash and no one's going to care about that office and you're going to be competing with a senator in a state that is never going to beat Mitch McConnell. And it, it wasn't even an exciting campaign either. You couldn't even say that it was like a bonfire of our emotions. Amy McGrath had no choice, no chance whatsoever. And she kept, again, shitting on the base rather than at least we could have had Charles Booker and he would have gone for it. And right, he, yeah. he would have at least uplifted. And you could have said, hey, maybe he's activating some voters that we didn't have before. So they'll pay attention next election. But no. Yeah. And I think it's really worth noting, like we're never going to win Kentucky by starting with a Senate race. We're going to win Kentucky by going from county to county and school board to school board and city council to city council slowly and not exciting and not sexy and there's no cocktail parties. It's just door knocking and engaging with voters where they're at over time. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that we can, I like, I always want to be very cautious about saying it. it's not that we can never win a state like Kentucky. We just can't win it that way. We right. just can't win it that way. You've got to start small. And we know this works because this is what Republicans have done for mm-hmm. decades. This was their strategy. They started with counties. They started with cities and then they slowly creeped their way into some of these formerly blue states and turned them red. We can do the same. It just takes an entirely different model of funding our work and an entirely different sort of timeline for success. 
Yeah. The scary thing is we, we might be running out of time. So, mm. yeah. I mean, speaking of sort of timelines and sustained activism, something I've, I've noticed is, um, you'll, you'll tweet every now and then a race that I didn't realize was happening, that somebody won, that you guys were supporting at run for something. And not only were you supporting, you were supporting them previously. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, um, there's a better, like with most things, there's a better chance the next time around, but now we're talking about just animating people to get involved on the local level at all now. But I also want to tell them you might lose, but then win. are you seeing, um, you know, commitment to this over multiple cycles paying off? We are. And I think it's one of my favorite parts of doing this work, because if you invest in people, not geography, you start to see real talent rise. So a couple examples here. Um, Joshua Cole in Virginia lost in 2017 by just 73 votes for a House of Delegates race. He came back and won in 2019, flipped a district. Liz Sheehan in Kentucky for Lexington Fayette Urban County Council challenged the longest running incumbent in 2018. They had not had a challenger for at least three cycles. She got 46% against them, one two years later. Uh, here in New York, two of my favorite Amandas in New York City politics, <laughs> Amanda Farias in New York City Council, who ran in 2017 against an incumbent, lost, and then just won uh, a couple months ago for City Council now. Amanda Septimo up in the Bronx, who bought beat a 26-year incumbent last year for state assembly after losing in the primary in 2018. Um, Marche Johnson, who ran and won for Montgomery City Council, lost in 2019, narrowly lost a runoff in 2020, then won in 2021 down in Alabama. Politics is like everything else. It takes time and practice to get good at. Nobody's born a politician. You become a politician by running for office and putting your name on the ballot, and you get better at it. Um, so I think it's amazing to see these folks stay in the fight cycle after cycle and it pays off because you, you improve. (laughs) Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, Corey Bush also ran a couple times Mm -hmm. before winning her primary. And she is obviously now a national figure who got the president to take a chance on extending, um, the moratorium. So we talked also about motivating the base. Amanda, I'm curious what role you think the capital insurrection is going to play in democratic recruitment efforts. I mean, we have hundreds of this will. I'm curious what role this is going to play at all in the election. I suspect Republicans, um, at least the mainstream ones, are going to try to pretend it didn't happen. But what what role are you seeing? Are you foreseeing it might play with Democrats' recruitment efforts? The day of the insurrection was our biggest recruitment day yet. Whoa. Um, more so than any day in 2017, um, more so than any day since. Uh, we saw thousands of people sign up to run for office. Um, 2021 is actually, has already exceeded 2017 and is, will imminently exceed 2018 as our best year, um, is on pace to be our best year. I think that there is a, a realization amongst a lot of folks who maybe didn't quite connect the dots before that this is who the Republican Party is now. The fact that there were more than 500 state legislators and local electeds and Republican Party officials who either participated in or enabled or encouraged or sent crisis. Yeah, it's a crisis. The party is rotten all the way down. Realizing that, I think, really illuminated for people. I have to run for these positions or the worst people on the other side will. And we're seeing that not just with the insurrection, but like, QAnon is encouraging people to run for local office. The Proud Boys have reoriented themselves towards local office. The Trump-affiliated think tanks or quote-unquote think tanks are running local candidate training. This is where the Republican Party is not just refocusing, but like doubling down on. 
and all of their offshoots are doubling down on it. You know, mm-hmm. it is never been more of a crisis and never been more important to fight back. Yeah, absolutely. As someone, I often bring this up on the show and I, I'm interested in Caitlin's. I feel like Caitlin always talks me out of it, but are you somebody who thinks through the electoral consequences of everything Congress does? I am. I'm always like, but if they do that, that'll scare off these people and these people. Um, how do you, do you think that's productive or do you think that's something Democrats and people who think like me uh, need to get up for? Caitlin, do you want to start? Uh, I feel like I, I feel set up here um, <laughs> <laughs> with this, with this question. Um, I think it's really important to remember what the, what the point is. I think one of the biggest problems about how we, how our politics is consumed right now. So it's on the consumer end. Um, it's also on, on the creation end. When we talk about it, we really are talking about, it's gotten very sports-based and it's really disturbing to me. You know, going, mm-hmm. I, I love looping things around. My, my parents were delegates and it wasn't, again, there's no animosity at losing an election because that is a thing that happens. My dad yeah. was a local elected, like it, he never became a, a whatever, like the, the whole point is to climb the ladder and not everyone's going to do that. That happens. Losing happens. But the problem is, is that like structurally we have gotten so polarized and so pushed into teams and for good reason. I think that to some degree we have had a big disagreement about what the United States is going to have to do to survive into the 21st century as a global power. And all of the things, all the smaller arguments that sit underneath that big argument have pushed us into very, very different camps onto what that is going to look like. But the problem is we need to solve the issues. Like we cannot continue to have this kind of, okay, well, each person has their perspective no, 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 no. We need to actually talk about what is going to solve this problem. And because on the consumer end, there's no thinking about like, how is this going to solve the problem? I'm, I saw tons of reporting on the bipartisan transportation bill, but I didn't see anything about the actual impact it was going to have on whether or right. not we were going to make a movement on climate change with the largest sector of our economy that contributes to climate change. We we didn't have it. There's no discussion about it. They're having happen in different spheres. So that's the problem, I think, with worrying about electoral consequences is that like by the time you get to the, the place where people are absorbing the politics and thinking about what's going to happen, they're not thinking about where how who's solving the problem or how it's getting solved. They're thinking about whose team is going to beat that other team and show them what's what. And that emotional gut reaction is 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 churning that and if we can break that we can have a different kind of discussion about our politics i think caitlin is right the thing i would add is that most people don't pay attention <laughs> you know we yeah. we and the listeners of the show are sort of um a rare breed uh, and i wish there were more of us who were paying close attention mm-hmm. most people don't um something like 40 percent of americans can't name the vice president Thirty oh, percent can name their state rep- their like member of Congress. Maybe um, very very few can name like all the Supreme Court justices. People have shit to do. They have kids. They have jobs. They have lives. They have hobbies. They have TV to watch. And you know, <laughs> politics is not just competing with other like current events. It's also competing with um, Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max and 
the movies and music and you know everything on my Instagram feed and TikTok. You know, it's it's everything. When you think about it in the sense of the like sort of attention economy and what people are giving their time to, it is no surprise because of the coverage that Caitlin just described, which feels like horse race, which feels just like soft mm-hmm. making bullshit that people don't want to engage and they don't want to learn more. And that sort of perpetuates a vicious cycle. And I don't blame anyone for that. And I think in particular, paying attention to national politics feels demoralizing and bad. It is why the need for <laughs> feels bad. <laughs> the need uh, more local news, the need for more engagement on a local level is not just because it directly affects your life. It's not just because it's better for civic engagement, but also like it feels good because you yeah. get more and you get to see the outcomes. Do I think everything that Congress does will have an impact on the election? No, I think very little of it will affect the election. I do think that the way that people feel about politics, whether it is a negative net good or net bad for their lives, will affect the election. So it's sort of a cumulative effort, yeah. not any one thing. And to keep in mind that for most people, that feeling doesn't come from any one story or any like one bill, but you know, the vibes, which is mm-hmm. a hard thing to quantify and to impact. Yeah, totally. I do think we have a lot of smart people leading leading the way who are who have the who have good vibes. <laughs> yeah. And now it's time for our buzzworthy news segment brought to you by Dame, putting the buzz in all the right places, making the world a happier place, one vulva at a time. Today's buzzworthy news headline is that a new report concludes that the world's top three most marketable athletes are women. Number one is easy to guess, four-time gold medalist and mental health co-ween Simone Biles. Number two is Naomi Osaka. And number three is soccer star Ashlyn Harris. That's two women of color and a lesbian, which is kind of incredible. All rank higher than even Cristiano Ronaldo. This is just proof that taking care of yourself pays off, which makes it a perfect Dame buzzworthy news segment. We love Dame. It's so approachable. The products are so cute. If this is your first time buying a product like this, you're going to love it. Their whole vibe pun intended, from the website to the packaging to the products themselves are whimsical. It's not intimidating at all. It's an overall very pleasant experience. So to get that buzz, you can try Dame for yourself by visiting dameproducts.com slash sup. You can learn more and take a quiz to find out which fiber product will be the perfect fit. This quiz will actually give you the perfect vibe for you. Plus, all new customers will get 15% off their first order on dameproducts.com slash sup. Go on and use that code while we've got it. That's D-A-M-E-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-S dot com slash sup. Uh, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. I actually feel a little bit lighter after it. I feel like slightly uh, less bar- fewer barriers on the path. Amanda, um, can you tell us more about how people can get involved and run for something? It's runforsomething.net. And I'll point out that you guys have such a thorough um, explainer of what you use your donations for. Um, mm-hmm. It's so thorough that I'll admit I didn't even get to the end of it. I was like, fine. <laughs> but um, you guys are super transparent about um, your goals. We've been talking about um, the next year. So what are your focus on and how can people get involved? So run for something is probably going to have about 300 candidates on the ballot in November. It's no off years, probably across about 16 or 18 states. We're still doing some endorsements. People still have some primaries. So final numbers to come, but um, 2021 elections happening all the time. Uh, And then we're recruiting for 2022. And I think 2022 in particular is going to be a very messy year because we are in the redistricting process as we speak. 
both for Congress, as people talk about for gerrymandering, but also for state legislatures. And a lot of these districts aren't going to get drawn until the last minute or get finalized. So we need to make sure we have as many people as possible thinking about running for office so that when we know exactly where the little boundary lines go, we can plug people in. So if you're thinking about running, whether for state legislature, city council, school board, library board, coroner, city clerk, uh, water board, library, whatever it is, we want to help you. If you go to runforwhat.net, you can enter your name and address and see the offices available to you in 2022. Um, If you're thinking somewhere further down the road, totally okay. Sign up, get the resources. And if you want to be inspired, the Run for Something podcast, I've been talking to alumni and candidates every week is just the best part of my week. Um, So tune in and hear about people who are just like you. They care, they want to do more, and they actually do it. And so can you. Yeah. Awesome. Incredible. Thank you so much. Until the end of Democracy, I'm Amanda Duberman. I'm Kate Lindbergh. And this is the Betches Up Podcast. Bye. That was great, you guys. Thank you so much. The Betches Sub Podcast is produced by Amanda Duberman, Jorge Morales-Pico, and Sean Kilby. Editing by Jorge Morales-Pico. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Be sure to follow at Betches underscore SUP on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And send us your emails to SUPPod at Betches.com. Betches.